Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Hey, um, before I get into today's message, let me show you a couple things I want to bring to your attention um, that are a little bit weird, okay? <laughs> and a lot of spiritually, spiritual things are happening in our country and around the world that people just continue to bury their heads in the sand about. And I want to bring that to your attention. A lot of these I'm going to flush out more on Wednesday night. I need to have more time, but I want to just give you a preface of, of some weird stuff that's occurring. So my monitor not here, is not working here. Okay, there we go. If you haven't heard, there's some weird Asbury counterfeit revival that's going on, okay? And everyone, all these, these so-called Laodiceans are getting uh, all uh, charged up about, oh, there's a move of God, there's a move of God. It's actually a counterfeit revival. I'm going to spend more time on Wednesday unpacking this. It is not of God because when you, oops, when you investigate it, number one, there's no word of God being preached. If you study all revivals in church history, there is a preaching of the word, okay? So when you see something spiritual that's devoid of God's word, it's not a revival. It's satanic. The, the, the music leaders started this, okay? So that's, that's atypical from typical um, revivals that ever started. It's always started with a preacher. Why? Because you can't get away from Romans uh, chapter uh, 10, how will they call unless they hear? How will they hear unless a preacher is sent? Okay, God always, in a revival, God always has a man or a group of men or whoever to start the revival through the preaching of God's word. That's how it starts in all church history, okay? There's never a revival that starts with some music leader leading the group, Okay. Look at it, what it's caused. It has other internet, uh, worship leaders coming from the International House of Pancakes, or prayer, I mean, sorry, um, which is a total, total cult. Circuit riders, uh, also who's involved, the circuit riders, Black Voices Movement, and Meet by Love are there going to worship there. There's no biblical repentance. The kids say, oh, we're repenting, we're repenting, we're repenting. Of What? What are you repenting of? Because they never say. Are you repenting of your wokeness? Because your, your college allows Preston Sprinkle, who's a so-called gay pastor, to continue to speak. There's no biblical repentance. Some of the students are actively participating in sin by reports of people on the ground. So how do you have a revival when someone's participating in active sin? There's no pastors, there's no leaders, there's no evangelism. Uh, it was planned, by the way. Francis Chan, uh, the false teacher that he is, let that out of the bag, that this was planned. It wasn't spontaneous. And false teachers around the world are flocking to this. Rick Warren, Mike Bickle, Todd Bentley, Francis Chan, Sean Bowles. It's also gay-affirming, by the way. and even has allowed queer students to participate in leaving, leading this revival. It's chaotic and it's confusing. That's not a sign of the Holy Spirit, because the sign of the Holy Spirit's order. And they're experiencing a counterfeit movement that's demonic. That's all you can conclude from this. So if you hear other Christians say, oh, and this is wonderful, they don't understand what's happening there. This is what's happening. I've done, I've done my work, I've done the investigation, and here's what's going on. It's fake. It's, 
It is spiritual, but it ain't coming from God. So understand that. And so you got um, a lot of these Laodiceans uh, saying, well, you're just a Pharisee. You're just a legalist. You just don't let the spirit work. That ain't the spirit. I'm supposed to test the spirit, and I've tested it. How could the spirit lead a revival when it's gay affirming? Okay, done. End the story. Other weird stuff. Several toxic fires, half a dozen, and trains are derailing that have hazardous materials. Ohio, Texas, South Carolina, Michigan. What's going on? This is, oh, is this all a coincidence? Just like the medical coincidence, people dropping dead? This is not a coincidence. I'm telling you, there's something up. I don't know what it is, but there's something up. You don't have all this hazardous material explode, a half dozen, and trains start derailing. All of a sudden, in the last few weeks, all of a sudden, something's up. Keep your radar up. We'll talk more about that on Wednesday. Now, for the first time, the UAE Interfaith Compound is actively working now. These are the, this is uh, in Abu Dhabi. This is uh, an ecumenical movement of the whore of Babylon. What you see there is a church, a synagogue, and uh, a mosque representing the Abrahamic faith. Sorry, Islam is not part of the Abrahamic faith. Sorry. So they have this compound, and what you're watching is the ecumenical movement of the whore of Babylon. So this has started. This is the groundwork for it. The whore of Babylon is here. You're watching it develop right there. Another thing. Oops. This is in Saudi Arabia. This is called the Muqab. This is Muraba. You can go to Muraba. I can't even pronounce it. Muraba.com. And look at what Saudi Arabia and MBS is planning to build. They're already planning to build this weird thing that's, that's... I don't know, 200 miles long. It's a real narrow thing where people live in the desert out there by the Red Sea. But this is what they want to build. Notice the, 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 the size of this thing and the, and the shape of it. It reminds me of New Jerusalem. That's the shape of New Jerusalem. Not at the scale, but isn't it interesting? And they want to build this out in Saudi Arabia. Now, inside of it, it has this kind of thing. It looks eerily familiar to something to me. You see it? It looks like the Tower of Babel inside this cube shape. Now, this is what Saudi Arabia wants to have as a 15-minute city. Remember, I've talked to you about 15-minute cities, okay? That's, this is Saudi Arabia's, but it's in a cube shape, and it has a tower inside of it, and people live in the cube. This is the weirdest thing I have seen yet. I can definitely see the overtones of a counterfeit New Jerusalem. I see the Tower of Babel, and I see the makings of what we know is predicted in Scripture of the movement towards Babylon. you got the whore is already active right now, and then we have these buildings and stuff like that. I'm not saying Babylon's going to be built in Saudi Arabia. I'm just telling you this is spiritually weird. This is demonic, I think. The, 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 the infrastructure, the way it's constructed. Why, why do they continue to want to build things that counterfeit what God builds and also counterfeits what happened in the Tower of Babel? Why do they want to keep doing, going back to that architecture? Because there's something spiritual going on. Something's evil. So I'm telling you, there's a lot of weird stuff happening. I want to bring that to your attention. Uh, again, I'm, I'm going to flush this out on Wednesday night, but I just 
I need you to be prepped to understand there's a lot of stupid stuff happening in the world that I just think it's flat out evil. Anyway, let's get to our, our text today in Genesis 12, 4 through 9. And what we're going to be studying is the hurdles that are going to come in Abraham's life just to see if he can pass the test about these hurdles, to see if he can push forward, to see if he will move through these hurdles in life. And what you're going to find that if Abraham will push through these hurdles, it will be a blessing. It will be a benefit to not only him, but all of humanity. And this is what we have to see in our own lives. There's two kinds of people, okay? And which one are you? There's two types of people that let problems stop them. And it's amazing to talk to people that, you know, uh, they have a hurdle and they say, well, that must be a closed door. And I said, that's not a closed door. You don't know it's a closed door unless you try to push through it. And so a lot of people just give up when a problem just hits them. And that's not the way to approach life. That's not how Abram's going to approach it. You get a roadblock, you get a hurdle, you get something in your way, that's not a sign to stop. It's a sign or maybe a test of whether can you push through? Can you, with God's help, through his power and, and all the tools he gets, gives you, can you push through on the issue? Now, if you can't, you can't. But at least you say you tried, and that was a closed door. And then the other people push through. I, I hope that's you. But you're going to have a lot of hurdles in life. Maybe you're having one right now. But you're going to have to learn how to push through, especially with all the hurdles they're going to throw at us coming up. So here's the thing about problems, hurdles in life. You can pray that God takes it away, okay? Just like the apostle Paul said he wished this thorn in his flesh would be removed, right? Even Messiah prayed that the cup would pass from him. Remember, they, that the father would take the cup from him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it is proper to pray for deliverance from a problem. You can do that. But what happens if you continue to pray and continue to pray and it doesn't go away? Well, that's a sign that, no, that problem is meant to stay and that problem is meant to either be cured or coped with. So you're only going to have two sets of problems in life. A curable problem, which means you have to work to cure it, or a coping problem. A coping problem is a thorn in the flesh. It's never going to go away. It's going to be with you all your life, and you're going to have to learn to adapt and cope to that problem. And so what do you do when you have a coping problem or a, even a, a curable problem? You go to God, Hebrews chapter 4, and you ask for grace and mercy and help for dealing with the problem. Okay? This is the biblical way to handle life. Unfortunately, what the people in our society are taught is that you need to be problem-free. That the, the essence of happiness is not to have problems. That couldn't be further from the truth because problems grow you. I don't, I don't typically grow spiritually if I'm on the, the, the height of the mountain and I don't have any problems, which I think there's only twice in my life I had no problems. Uh, I think when I was 12... And maybe when I was 17, and that was it. Everything else has been a load of problems, right? And, and so what the culture tries to teach people is it, to get away from your problems and get a safe space and, 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 and work in an environment where no one's threatening you with other problems. That is, that is so unreality. That is fantasy world. That's not how we're built. That's not how we're trained. Problems grow you. 
And you have to see them that way. Okay, so I want you to see the problems and the hurdles that Abraham's going to deal with. Number one, look what it says in verse four. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Okay, so he starts the journey. We've been talking about him starting the journey, okay? So now he's going and he's gonna move into the land of Canaan, okay? So he starts, he takes that one step. And what is this? What are we seeing from this one step? It's just the next step. That's all he's doing. He doesn't know where he's going. He just takes the next step. And that's what you have to understand about Abraham and, and, the li and life's hurdles. You're going to get hit with problems that are so big in magnitude that you won't know what to do. They're so big. And you're like, I don't know how we're going to see our way through this. This is a disaster. What's going to happen? All God is asking you to do in the hurdle, in the problem, is just take one step. Just take one step towards the solution or one step into the problem and deal with it. And that's all that's required of you. Jesus said this, look, therefore do not worry, saying, what, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For, for after all these things, the goyim or the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things which shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for, the, for tomorrow will worry about its own thing. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Okay, so this is a passage about worry, but what, how, what do we typically worry about? The problems. So you're like, how is this going to happen? What's my life going to turn out to be? What's going to be for my kids? What's gonna... You get into all these hypotheticals. And like Mark Twain said, 99% of the things he worried about didn't come true. That's right. Because Messiah is saying, stay in the day that you're in, dealing with the problem, and don't project out about the problem. This doesn't mean you can't plan life. This doesn't mean you can't make plans. What he is saying is, if you become so problem-oriented to where your mind goes to the future and you start doing the what-ifs, you will start causing yourself so much anxiety and worry because of the worry and stress that it actually starts breaking you down. You become paralyzed in fear because you are, you're doing the hypothetical thing. And then what starts happening is if you continue to go this route, you will catastrophize. And when you start catastrophizing, that's when Katie bar the door. All Hades will break loose, loose in your life and you will be paralyzed with fear. Don't do that. Don't even ask, where does this end? Just say, tomorrow is Monday. I have this problem. What's one thing, one step I can do to either cure this problem or figure out how to cope with it? That's it. That's all you need to do. What do you need to do today for the problem? And, if you, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. Sufficient for the day is his own trouble. Just deal with today's trouble. Don't get beyond it. Now, if you can do that, this will cure a lot of anxiety. This will cure a lot of stress. Everyone's having uh, hypertension and, and stress because of, they see the world as, as it is. Look, man, what, you might be raptured today. Then what did you spend your wheels on worrying about what's going to happen next year, what's all that? I'm not saying you can't plan. You need a plan, but stay in today with problems. Let's continue on. Watch this. And Lot went with him. 
And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Remember, we talked about that in earlier sermons, how that's a problem. He's 75, and he's picking up and, and moving to a new location. This guy's settled. He's in retirement. He's, he's golden. He got the golden parachute. He's ready to go with life. No, no, now you're moving at 75 years old. 75, really? Wow, we already talked about that. But notice who he took with him, Lot. Now, this is part of Abraham's strength, but it's Abraham's greatest weakness. Abraham is a family-oriented man. That's why he's going to be the, family, uh, the, the father of the family of faith, obviously. That's why God picked him. But his greatest strength is his greatest weakness, and that's the same for us sometimes. So Abraham takes Lot with him. He could have left Lot in Haran with his dad, but he ends up taking Lot. And he kind of adopted Lot as a, a nephew because Abraham's brother had died and Lot's without a dad. And a typical Abraham, family-oriented, he's going to kind of adopt Lot and watch out for him and take care of him. That's a problem. Should have left Lot behind. Anyway, then Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother and son. Notice how it emphasizes it twice that he took them. It's trying to indicate to you there's a problem in taking Lot, okay? His brother's son. All their possessions, and they had gathered, and the people whom they have acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Okay, so what is the point? When you are on your journey, when you are doing your call, you make sure you have the right traveling companions with you. Okay? Now, we've already talked about leaving the other ones that are behind that can't make the trip. We got that. That's more separation. But this is even saying, look, choose your journey friends wisely. Because these guys will say, I'm going with you, man. I'm all the way with you. And they will turn on you like a sheep-killing dog at some point in time. The wrong people that you take on the trip with you will distract you. They'll pull your resources. For goodness sake, Abraham has to go to war over this guy and risk everything for stupid Lot. Because Lot doesn't, well, let's put it this way. He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer. He's not, he's not that much, he's not a, a, a very spiritual man. He's saved, don't get me wrong. Lot's saved. In fact, Lot's in, is spoken of uh, by Peter. So we know what Lot's saved, but he's dull spiritually. Lot is the type of guy that's high maintenance. Do you have high maintenance people around you? Oh. You just look at him and you're like, man, he's just high maintenance, dude. You, you're a taker, you never give, man. And you're sucking the life out of me right now. You know those type of people? That's the wrong companion on the journey. And, the un, and, and if you're not careful, these traveling companions will pull you away from God. And you will, it'll, it'll be small steps by small steps. Be careful who you take on your journey. Be careful who you surround when you're doing the call of God. Be careful. They can become a problem. So open your eyes. Start paying attention. Abraham is blind towards Lot because Abraham's strength is family, okay? So be careful. So they came to the land of Canaan. Notice it's not called Israel at this point in time. It's Canaan. And what that means is there's a bunch of Canaanites 
had lived there. And this is a major problem. So God is moving Abraham to Canaan, and there's a bunch of pagan, heathen, the most ungodly people you could ever imagine. Okay? The Canaanites are bad. Just, just put that into your, your biblical repertoire. And it's funny that in, the, in, in Zechariah chapter 14, talking about the Messianic age and the kingdom age, it says there will never be another Canaanite in the land of Israel again. Wow. So these guys are a problem. They're, I mean, they worship uh, child sacrifice, sexual immorality. I mean, they're the... Wait, wait a second. It sounds like America. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's like that. So think about the problem. I'm going to take you to a land that's filled with a bunch of heathens that actually will hate you, Abraham. Thank you very much. It sounds like we're living in California here. That's right. You're here in California. Most of the state despises your views. Absolutely despises your views. So you're in Canaan. Here's what you have to understand. Since the father wants us to become like his son, that's the goal for our life is to become more like Christ, okay? And complete our individual call, what he wants us to do. Then do not expect that comfort and security are a top priority. It's not. He's taking him to a hostile area where there's major pressure put on Abraham, not only to conform, but to get him out of the land because he's declaring that he's the owner of the land to Canaanites. So it's not a life of comfort. It's not a life of ease. You're called to a life of discomfort. Are you okay with that? It's going to be hard. You're going to have enemies. You're on foreign ground. You have, to, you have to picture this. It's like you've been, you, you, you jumped out of an airplane and you're, you're airborne and you're going and you're deployed behind enemy lines. That's how it is really spiritually. You're behind enemy lines. You're in a hostile territory. But here's the thing, like this caption says, true life, the abundant life that Christ wants for you, the spiritual life, it only begins when you get out of your comfort zone. If you decide to stay in a comfort zone, you're never going to experience the abundant life. You'll never risk anything. You always play it safe. And, and, and you won't go anywhere. You won't travel because you're afraid of the plane crashing. You're afraid of, afraid of getting in the car wreck. So you never take any risks in your life. And you know what will happen when you play it safe and you don't go anywhere and you don't do what God wants you to do? You know what will happen? You'll slip in your shower and break your neck. And serves you right. Because you didn't take any risks in your life. You didn't stay out of your, you wouldn't move out of your comfort zone. That's how it ends. You slip and fall and break your neck in the shower. Don't do that. Don't do that. Anyway, look what it says about Abraham. And this is Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would, he would receive as an inheritance. We talked about that already. And he went out not knowing where he was going. That, I already emphasized that. But this is the second part I want to emphasize in verse 9. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise, but notice how, as in a foreign country. 
It wasn't Israel at the time. And notice what he did, dwelling in tents with uh, Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which, was, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, this is impressive. He's willing to live in a tent. He's not going to settle down. Abraham will never see the promise come to fruition in his earthly life. He will in the kingdom. That's when he'll see it. That's when he'll experience the whole land grant to Israel, okay? But he never experienced it. He never had a permanent dwelling. He dwelt in tent. And what did he do? He lived by faith, waiting on the Lord. And what did he wait on? He waited on a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. What is that? Well, some say that this is reference to the New Jerusalem. But for the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant promises a Jerusalem that's ruled and reigned by God himself on earth, which we call the Messianic age. So Abraham understood this promise that it's going to be future and God will rule in Jerusalem one day. That, that's Jesus. And he will get to see that one day in the land. Okay? I think it's a, a reference to that, uh, to that promise. Uh, it could be a reference to New, New Jerusalem, but I think it's more in line with uh, the Jewishness of the Messianic age. Okay. That being stated, what did it take Abraham to live in a tent and wait on God to get the land, to get the land promise, even though Canaanites were there. Well, it's called patient endurance. And that's what's required of us, okay? So the problem the Canaanites brought to Abraham, this is the hurdle that he has to deal with, is that he's gonna come to the end of himself because how is he going to extract the Canaanites? He can't, he's by himself. He's, he's got his family with him, but were they gonna go to war with all the Canaanites? no. He's have to wait on the Lord to extract them. That's what he's going to have to do, and that's called patient endurance. And that's what God is asking us. These problems that you're dealing with require patient endurance. As a guy, I can tell you, I see a problem, I want to fix it right away. And what I find out most of the time is like, ooh, that's, that's not going to happen. And boy, this is going to take a long time. It's going to actually take years. And that's frustrating. That's frustrating, man. I want it now. I want, I want like, you know, you go to McDonald's. I want that now, right? You know, the, I want a fast food thing. And my, my mind is not, not thinking correctly because I, I, I like, well, let's do it this way. And, and no, no. And God is stretching things out for a reason. Now, he has a plan and a purpose why the timing and the things happen. And you have to wait. Because that, that's the thing. You're, you, you, the, the, the human nature of us wants to get rid of the problem ASAP. Let's get rid of the problem. Let's do it. And that's not how God works. He wants you to deal with this problem long term so that you learn, that you conform to the image of Christ, that it, you, you start understanding. Look, the... the, the if God just took away all your problems, you wouldn't learn anything. It's just boom, boom, boom. He's just pulling them out. What the problems are that he brings to you 
are working on areas that you need development on. Okay? So it's a development issue sometimes. And you have to see it that way. And so if you remove that problem, you're not going to develop. So everything you have going on right now in your life, you must ask this. Stop, ask, stop asking God to take it away and start asking God, reveal to me what the issue is in me that I need to work on. That would be a better approach. Because then, now we can work. Now we can get together and, and, and figure this thing out. Because I guarantee you, your problem will reveal something that's not healthy inside of you. That he wants healed or he wants fixed. Patient endurance is required. Now we'll notice this. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem. Shechem is a major spiritual place. I'll explain this. As far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. Now, the terebinth tree is really an oak tree. And Moses says that there was actually a grove of these oak trees by Shechem. Um, and they call it the tree of Moreh or the trees of Moreh. What does Moreh mean? Moreh means the tree of teaching. There's a teaching element here. Now, whether that, 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 that name came from the Canaanites that worshiped the trees and the rocks and stuff like that, and they call this grove or this tree the tree of teaching. Anyway, the, it, it gets adapted in here. And so it's the tree of teaching, okay? So if you adapt it into the biblical narrative, this tree, this grove of trees is going to teach Israel something major, it becomes a spiritual landmark for the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So this is interesting. There's different landmarks in Israel, as you know. Jerusalem is the landmark, right, for salvation, okay? Salvation was the dealt. Adam and Eve apparently, took, uh, and I believe the rabbis are right on this, Adam and Eve were created at the temple, uh, sorry, where the temple mount is, Mount Moriah, in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was there, okay? Then they got sent away. But you know, then Abraham takes Isaac later on on Mount Moriah. Then he says, God will provide. And you know, uh, the temple was there. And then obviously the crucifixion was north of the temple, right? And then Jesus comes back and rules and reigns at Mount Moriah. Okay, so we obviously understand that the Temple Mount is a spiritual landmark, right? Of salvation and ruling and reigning for the Messiah. But Shechem and the, the grove of oaks there are another landmark for the Abrahamic covenant. So when you talk about Shechem, that's what you're referring to, okay? That's why it's significant here. So look at all the things that happened in this area of Shechem where these trees are. Yahweh appeared to Abraham here, as we see in the text right now. Abraham would build an altar there to Yahweh. We're going to study that in just a second. Jacob would buy the land, dig a well, and settle there. Remember that? He would bury all the foreign idols at the base of this particular tree. Jacob's son sold Joseph into slavery near here, which allowed Israel to be saved from a coming famine and thus sustained the Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember that? All in this area, all right here. Joshua would return with Israel and, and made them declare their allegiance to the Lord at this place. 
Joshua then put a great stone here as a landmark and a faith mark. By the way, Shechem today is in Judea and Samaria, but they call this the West Bank. There's no such thing as the West Bank. It's Judea and Samaria. And this is area that the, the Palestinians live in and also Israel lives in, in this area. You go to Shechem, it's hard to get into Shechem because it's Palestinian controlled. But if you go to Shechem, guess what you will see between the two mountain peaks that are there? You will see Joshua's stone. It's still there today. Still there. Joshua put that there. Why? Because when they went back in the land from the Egypt, there was a recommitment to the Abrahamic covenant of God making good on his promises. Also, when they came back, Joseph's bones were buried there. Abimelech would be declared the first king of northern Israel here. Rehoboam would be declared king over Israel here as well. Oops. Jeroboam built his first capital in the northern kingdom of Israel here. And think about this. Messiah met the Samaritan woman here at Jacob's well that Jacob built in this area. And what was, what was Jesus in the whole interaction with the woman at the well? He was showing that the Abrahamic covenant just is not just simply for the Jews, but it's meant for the Gentiles as well. And that's what he was showing the disciples, that the Abrahamic covenant is to bless all the families of the earth. And that's why he has this interaction with the woman at the well. At Shechem. Now you tell me, is that not a spiritual landmark? That's a spiritual landmark. Okay? And, and, and it's a landmark for the Abrahamic covenant. So Shechem is very, very important for the Abrahamic covenant. Now, here's what I want to ask you. Do you have your own spiritual landmarks in your life between you and God? You need to recognize them. You need to understand where those spiritual landmarks are. One landmark would be when you got saved. Okay. Another landmark is when you decided to become mature and stop messing around with your Christianity and got, you got uh, uh, serious about your faith is maybe another landmark. Or maybe there was some other turning point in your life where it just changed you to be more serious about the Lord and more, more, more in, in, in tune with him, in fellowship with him. I don't know. But here's the thing. You must know where your spiritual landmarks are because those are turning points for you. It is your Shechem. It is your history with God. And they tell you what God is doing with your life. That's why Shechem is so important as a spiritual landmark. It's telling what God is doing all through the patriarchs, all up into the Messiah, what his plan is about the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's saying. He's declaring that out. So you look at your spiritual landmarks. What is God saying to you in your landmarks? What turning points were there? Why did he want you to go this way and that way and this way? He's showing you his plan for you. And if you know his plan, then you know how to proceed. It's very important. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. This is a theophany, okay? This is God's presence right there in Abraham uh, at Shechem, in the, at the, the oaks. That's where he's a, God manifests in a theophany, okay? And said, to your descendants, I will give this land. Who are his descendants? 
these guys. The land belongs to Israel. Make no mistake, it doesn't belong to anyone else. This is the Abrahamic covenant. The land of Israel belongs to the Jews, period. End of story. No other discussion. There is no other debate. The Palestinians are nothing but refugee Arabs from 1948. And it was the refugee problem started with the Arabs. They told them, the the few that were living in Israel, to get out while they destroyed Israel in 1948, and then they would let them back in the land. Well, guess what happened? Israel won, and so these people that the Arabs told to get out became a refugee problem for the Arab countries. And they didn't want to assimilate them into their own country, so they put the issue, the results of their attack on Israel as the problem. And it's not the problem. The Palestinians are the results of what the Arabs did to Israel. It's not what Israel did to them. So at the end of the day, today, as we're speaking, that land belongs to the Jews, period. There's no debate. But let's continue on. What, what is this thing about the, the, the theophany of why Abraham's appearing, sorry, God's appearing to Abraham? It's the assurance of his presence. Abraham's in hostile territories around Canaanites, for goodness sakes. These people are, are, are like demonically possessed. These people are crazy. Child sacrifice, sexual, I mean, it's just, it's off the chart, the Canaanites. So God it ha- appears to Abraham to show them, Abraham, I'm with you. You're not alone here. I know it's a scary place to be, California, but you're not alone, <laughs> right? And so what he's trying to say is, look, I'm going to guarantee my presence with you. And if I guarantee my presence with you, then my promises will come to fruition. That's what the idea of the presence is. I'm going to make good on these promises. And Abraham, rest assured, I will make the way, not you. You do not have to worry about you making a way through the Canaanites. You do not have to worry about dispossessing the Canaanites. You do not have to worry about going to war with them and taking the land from them. Don't worry about that. I will do that. I will make the way. Now, the same thing is said to you. Some of these problems that you're dealing with are massive. And God's saying, do you really think you're gonna do this by yourself? Do you really think because you're, you're, you're at the height of pride thinking you're going to get through this on your own. He is, God is telling you, by the promise of his presence, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have that promise too. But when you have that promise of his presence, it means that he will make the way through the problem. All you need to do is just take the step and follow. He carves it out. He navigates through the uncharted waters. And that's, that, so that's not your problem. That's his. Give it over. I'll just ask God. God, navigate me through this problem. Show me the next step. What do I need to do? And he'll make the way. That's what he promises by his presence. And then it says, so Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. 
Now he goes to the Negev. He goes, so watch Abraham's progression. He goes from the north to the middle and to the south of Israel. Why is he doing that? He's mapping the territory, marking that this belongs to Israel. Even though the Canaanites are there, he's, it's basically, he's putting the stake down and saying, this is ours, this is ours, this is ours, this is ours. That's what he's doing. He's mapping the area. And that, again, that area will come to fruition when Messiah comes back, but that's what he's doing. He's staking out the ground. Okay, but this is important. I want you to catch this. And there, where? At Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. Okay, so he's still in the area. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, here's what happened in, during the days of the patriarch. They didn't have a central place of worship. So the patriarchs would build an altar. Job did the same thing in the, in the patriarch days. Uh, Job's living around the same time as Abraham, by the way. That's, that's how far we go back with Job. And what they would do, the father of the home would build an altar to Yahweh, much like uh, what, how it was in the Garden of Eden. There was an altar there, and you, built, and you made your sacrifice to that. So anyway, he builds an altar. But I want you to see something. He's building an altar, and he's worshiping Yahweh in the land of Canaan, which doesn't worship Yahweh. This is another stake in the ground, that this place will be the place of worship for Yahweh, not these Canaanite gods. So he does that, but he takes an incredible risk in doing this. Because, number one, it's public. So if any Canaanite walks around and sees this, they're saying, what God are you worshiping? Because we don't worship Yahweh. We worship all these other false gods. And so Abraham is publicly identifying with Yahweh in public worship on foreign soil. That would be like you and I going in the middle of Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia and this busting loose with worship to Jesus. Right in the cabal. You, you, get, you get what I'm saying? You're risking your life. They'll kill you. And so he's putting it all on the line. And this is called public identification with Yahweh. Okay, so look what else happens. As he moves south, he does it again. Again, another stakeout. And he moved from there to the mountain of the east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel and on the west and Ai on the east. See that, that, that blue circle I put there? That's where Joshua put the, 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 the stone there, okay, in that area, okay, um, uh, where Shechem is in, in that area. Okay, so he moves down to Bethel and Ai. And there he built an altar again, another altar, another place of worship, and called on the name of the Lord. Now that's telling me something. Now let's unpack this. People just gloss over this and say, well, he built a, he's worshiping Yahweh, and he called on Yahweh's name. It, no, that, it, it's more than that. In fact, the concept of calling on God's name is a habitual thing that believers do. You can see this all the way back in early Genesis chapter 5, I believe. It says, men began, began to call on the name of Yahweh. It doesn't mean they got saved. That is so wrong. That is such a mistranslation of not knowing the Hebraic background on this. Furthermore, let me, let, so let's explain this. What is this idea of 
calling on the name of the Lord. Well, another term that's synonymous with this is confessing the Lord. Confessing the Lord. Now, again, a lot of confusion about this because you, you go to Romans chapter 10 and it will say, with the heart you believe and are, are justified, that's salvation, and then it says, with the mouth you confess and are sozo. Most people put those two together and they believe that salvation is by faith and confessing the mouth. That's unfortunate because that's not what it's saying. You don't understand the Hebrew background. Confession for sozo is confession for deliverance, not a physical deliverance, not for salvation. Paul makes it very clear. With the heart you believe and are justified, but with the, the mouth you confess the Lord publicly and publicly identify him so that you can be delivered from this people, from the evil, or maybe from the wrath of God. It is totally different. So you'll have these, like in VBS or the ABCs of salvation. That couldn't be more incorrect. It is not admit or believe and confess. Confess is not part of salvation. You're adding something to salvation if you believe confession is part of it. So they'll tell little kids, now confess and go tell somebody that. That's not salvation. Confession is only for believers after they're saved. Okay, so what is it? Confession, let me, let me explain a situation that happened in the Gospels. It says in, in, in John chapter 12, verse 42, 43, 44, somewhere in that neighborhood. It says, many of the Pharisees believed in Messiah but would not confess him publicly for fear of being put out of the synagogue. Does that tell you what it's about? The Pharisee, there's many secret believers in Messiah among the leadership of Israel, but they would not declare it publicly because they were afraid of being cut off from the synagogue. So what does confession mean then? Confession means that I publicly identify with God. I am not a secret servant. I am out there. I confess Jesus as Lord. And what that means is that when you call upon the name of the Lord as a believer, you're calling on deliverance. It also means you're, you're, you're stating your allegiance, your commitment, and that you're the personal property of Yahweh. That's what confession means. And when you confess him before men, he says, I promise you, if you do this in front of people that, that you identify with me and my teachings, I will confess you before my Father in heaven, in rewards, not salvation. Okay, so when Abraham is doing this, he's not only worshiping, it doesn't mean that he, he got saved. He's already saved before this. It means that Abraham is calling on Yahweh to deliver him from the Canaanites, that they don't mess with him, they don't kill him, right? And that's part of it. But it means he's asking for God's protection because he's publicly identifying with him. He's doing this in front of every Canaanite to see that he's a Yahweh worshiper. He's loyal to him. He's dedicated to him. He confesses him. And that brings the heat on him. That's why he starts calling on the Lord for deliverance, for help, for protection. 
And that's, that's, by the way, it's a habitual thing. You should do the same. You, when, you, when it says confess Christ, that means you are not secret about your faith. You're just not secret. We did a funeral yesterday for uh, Paul Salazar. Paul has always been quiet around me. Doesn't say anything. But then you see all the people he affected at his, at his, at his memorial yesterday. And all these, these hundreds of people at his work that he was praying for, that he was reading the Bible with, going through the Bible. He was confessing publicly Messiah to all those workers. And he was using that as his mission field. You would never know that about Paul because he was so quiet. But he did. And what did he do? He wasn't ashamed of Jesus. So he'd go to these workers and pray for them. Let me pray for you. Uh, they, they would do a Bible study uh, at, at the meetings in the morning and stuff. That's called confessing, confessing the Messiah. And that's what Abraham was doing. Let's continue on. <clears throat> so with this, worship is obedience. So when he's worshiping God, He's saying, I'm going to obey. Now, I know what you, we call today worship in our modern day time. We call it, we're going to sing songs and worship the Lord. And that's fine. That's part of worship, but it's not the entirety of worship. You can sing a song and not obey, and that's bad, right? You can sing songs to the Lord. I love you, Lord. I love Jesus. And then, you know, you're, ban- you're robbing banks, and that's obviously a problem. And, and so at the end of the day, worship is true obedience, that's what he's trying to say. That's what, that's what Abraham is doing. You're seeing Abraham's obedience in the face of enemies that would actually get mad at him and try to maybe kill him, okay? Look what it says. If you love me, keep my commandments. You know that. Therefore, who confesses me before men, I will confess before my father is in heaven. That's what he's doing. So here's the thing. About, let's go back to our path. The path that you're on right now, the path that Abraham's on. God will show you the path to the degree you're willing to surrender to obedience. So if you want to have a clear shot, what's my path, then it comes back to your obedience. That's what Abraham is doing by erecting these altars. He's saying, I'll do anything you need me to do. You want me to stand on my head and whistle Dixie? You got it. And when you surrender to that kind of obedience then he's willing to show you the path. But if you're not obedient, why would he show you the path? You first have to straighten out the disobedience before he shows you the path. And then you will know how to handle these, uh, these hurdles and problems that are coming your way. So think about this. Surrendering to obey allows the Lord access to every part of us that needs what? Healing, wisdom, guidance, love, truth, grace, mercy, growth, fixing, correction, and freedom from sin. I don't want to live spiritually and healthy. It's not fun. It's, it's a drag on my life. I don't want to live that way. So what do I have to do to get healing and all these things that he promises? Surrender to obey. And he waits on us to do that. He waits on us. He will not force things down our throat. He will not force a path that we're not willing to go. He waits for that. And that's what Abraham is doing. He's waiting on the Lord in obedience for the next move. And it's pretty scary. Let me show you this, and we'll end on this. 
So on that path, you're going to have hurdles. We just talked about that. Now we're, we've explained how to wait on those hurdles, wait for God to make a way through them, and go to the first step in tackling the hurdle. Um, I have a lot of, of, of heroes in my life. Um, a lot of them come from athletics, but nonetheless, this is one of my heroes. This is Jim Abbott. If you notice on his right hand, his glove is being held up and not on his hand because he didn't have one. And so Jim Abbott grew up as a little boy not having a right hand. And his father, you know, obviously they saw that and they, they wanted Jim to play soccer instead so he didn't have to have, use his limbs. But Jim's like, no, I want to play baseball. I want to play baseball. And, and you know, the, the mom and dad were like, wow, that's going to be real hard. But Jim, believe it or not, when he was a little boy, trained himself how to catch and throw with one hand by putting the glove underneath. And he could do it so fast you couldn't even tell. You couldn't tell. By the time he was in the major leagues, he, he, I mean, I think, I, I think one year he got a golden glove or something like that. He was amazing how he could just switch the glove back and forth from one hand to another. It was amazing. It, it's a feat. YouTube it. You, you'll see how he does it. Anyway... Here's a guy who is told, this is your hurdle in life. You're missing a, a, a hand and, and most of your forearm. Who in the world thinks he's going to play baseball? But he did. That, that picture right there is when he threw a no-hitter for the Yankees. The point I'm trying to make is, that was a physical impediment. And he was able to overcome it and go to the major leagues. That guy's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. At the same token, the issues that you have, you can overcome too. You can deal with them. You can cope because you have God behind you. you it's not just a physical ailment. This is God helping you spiritually through the, life, through the life that you're dealing with and through the hurdles. If a guy can get past a physical hurdle... How about you who has God behind them, who has infinite energy, uh, infinite power to give you and strength to give you to get through anything you need to get through? Forget it. It's over. You're the winner. If you have God behind you, you can do it just like Abraham does, but surrender in obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from Abraham's life how he worshiped you in front of all these pagan Canaanites and wasn't afraid because he knew he called on you to protect him. We, Father, we know that our call is going to, we're going to ask for protection too from you because it's going to bring a lot of heat with these Canaanites we live around, not only in California, but around our culture. We're surrounded by Canaanites too. But help us, Father, to surrender in obedience to you what you want us to do. Father, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know your son, they would come to faith in him today, understanding he, he paid for their sins on a cross, was buried and rose on the third day to give everlasting life to anyone who will believe. Speak to hearts now as we have a time of invitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.